So let's take a few deep breaths in and out. One of the nice things about doing these 16 steps, <clears throat> it's sort of like doing uh, scales on a piano, that they become more and more second nature and you don't actually have to work them as much as you, um, you just have to incline your mind in certain ways, incline your body in certain ways and it remembers what it was like. So you find yourself holding tension and you don't have to really work every single step to get rid of it. You're, you just kind of intuitively remember, oh, I don't need to hold all this. Or um, there's like this heaviness in my heart. I wonder if I could actually breathe it out. And so some of this happens a lot faster, but if you do these steps with some discipline, that's what builds the capacity for it to become more second nature. So um, work with them at times carefully, and then you might find that you can actually just do more uh, more quickly once you get to know them. So there's a there's a building capacity. So again, we have the Anapanasati Sutta structure, the prologue, the 16 steps, four foundations of mindfulness, and seven factors. And um, we're about to get into the, the last four steps of the 16. What I wanted to show you here is that um, the last four steps of the 16 are really focused on generating liberating insights, which is also true for the four foundations of mindfulness, which is also true for the seven factors of awakening. And so really what we're about to do is <clears throat> change, um, change practices. The first 12 steps that we've gone through really could be seen as developing samadhi. I'm not sure if you're um, familiar with this concept, the translation of the word samadhi into concentration is has become the unfortunate default. Excuse me. <clears throat> but um, many of us prefer this. Um, samadhi is is the experience of uh, the mind, heart, and body start to feel whole, start to feel balanced, start to feel there's this. Um, beautiful sense of wellness coming up through the heart, mind, and body. So concentration doesn't really capture all, all those nuances, but developing samadhi, um, when you understand what samadhi is, it's got many, many beautiful qualities to it, of which one part of samadhi is that the, all the attention is unified in one direction, which is kind of like concentration. So if you can stay with the word samadhi, and build an understanding, it holds more than the word concentration. So these first <clears throat> 12 steps of settling the body, settling the mind, and then settling the space of the heart and the mind so that they're balanced, um, there's a sense of contentment and well-being, um, non-distraction, um, all these beautiful aspects begin to emerge. It takes wisdom to guide yourself into that and then that realm of samadhi begins to be the basis for developing uh, penetrating, penetrative insight and uh, liberating wisdom. 
So we're going to go into that, but <clears throat> if I use the word samadhi, does anybody want me to go through it one more time what samadhi is, just so um, <laughs> you can learn this one Pali word? There are a few Pali words that are really worth learning because their English translations are just not help. They, they, they're as complicated as they are helpful. So <clears throat> samadhi, samadhi, it's one of the folds of the Eightfold Path, um, and it gets translated as concentration. So every now and then, if you read a text or if I say it, I'll, I'll use that word because it's become the translation of the word samadhi. But samadhi, <clears throat> if you imagined um, I had a, a, a big light and it was just shining out, it's one light shining out in a steady, warm beam, you could say that light has samadhi. But if I shake the light, if I, if I move it around, it's kind of going all over the place, it's not stable, that light would not have samadhi. If I broke it into a thousand pieces and they all shone in different directions, even if it was stable, it was scattered, that wouldn't be samadhi. Samadhi is when the heart, mind, and body begin to um, move very beautifully as one. There's a type of grace in the body, grace in the heart, grace in the mind. There's a type of balance um, it's not so easily thrown. Uh, it's a collection of many beautiful qualities coming together, and that's what we call samadhi. Um, so I'm using samadhi to, to be a bigger container than the English word concentration, which means you have this focus, um, but concentration doesn't give the sense of um, well-being. The word concentration doesn't engender the word well-being, but samadhi does. The word Concentration doesn't talk about um, the all being very balanced. Like again, if I had the floodlight, <clears throat> but one part of it was brighter and another part was dull, when it all feels very even <clears throat> and warm and stable, you can say that light beam has come into samadhi. Again, that's what we're trying to do with the heart and the mind. Balance it, make it even, make it warm, make it uh, stable. And that's where we're inviting our hearts and our minds and our bodies into that um, flow state. And we call that samadhi. Any questions about samadhi? Maybe that's another way just to see if I can clarify this term. Did you okay. ever use the word, the way you're talking about it, what comes to mind is integrated, whole? Integrated and whole. That's another one. Yeah. And so if you're... If I'm listening to you, but I can't let go of something in the back of my mind, then my mind has sort of weak samadhi. Steady enough that I'm following, but I'm also fending off something. Or I'm nodding like I'm talking to you, but I'm really elsewhere. Those are all the breaking down of samadhi. And our normal multitasking life is very antithetical to samadhi. So one big part of our meditative practice is developing this unity of attention, this unity of being where you're not scattered, fragmented, um, imbalanced, uh, agitated, distorted. As you get into samadhi, another beautiful thing that happens in samadhi is that <clears throat> the heart and the mind and the body, there's this sense of well-being that begins to come out of the heart, mind, and body in samadhi. And the way you look upon the world in samadhi, it looks beautiful. And so there are some spiritual traditions all they're trying to do is develop samadhi because the world feels more and more divine as you're in samadhi. You're more content because you're more content. You have more patience to offer other people. They don't appear like 
their big problem, or at least not affecting your sense of well-being, because it's not being born from them, it's being born from inside. So <clears throat> the world appears somewhat divine when you're in these beautiful states of um, non-normal samadhi. You have some, some samadhi to drive your car, but that's sort of like worldly samadhi. When you get into meditative samadhi, there's just so much beauty, well-being, stability, um, and it feels really trustworthy, true. So you stop reaching for other strategies to become happy, and just samadhi itself becomes what you want to cultivate. Yeah. Well, this may be way off, but I, I think about endorphins, and I think about addiction. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, not necessarily alcohol, but just being yeah. in that state, it seems similar. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, and so you all have had samadhi, and maybe samadhi is different for all of you, but if you've ever in, enjoyed hearing music and just felt very in flow with music, that's a type of samadhi. If a cat curls up in your lap and starts purring, and you're, there's a crackling fire and your favorite music is playing, and it's like this sense of perfection. But it's not because it's so pleasant. It's not like there's sugar on your tongue and there's something perfect in your ear and you're flooded with beautiful things in your eyes. It's like, no, it's just it's a beautiful, calm place to be. That's a, you know, samadhi feels like that. If you've ever been in a, a warm bath and exhaled, like, ah, oh, the Calgon moment. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> the, uh, these deep absorptions, I call them the meditative Calgon, because when you drop in and you kind of just forget everything else. You forget past, present, future, your name, your address, but you're really in a lot of bliss. Um, that's when, it, that's different, that's, that's absorption samadhi, which is, a type of samadhi. Anyways, I want to, if it's confusing, I'll try to use the English words, but um, uh, when we develop stability of attention, a type of steady flow of contentment that's not based on um, sense pleasures, but it's based on the sort of the wellness, you're just in a really well state. And so it's, um, <clears throat> and you can even handle some body pain and some bitter tastes, but it's not throwing you off because there's a type of contentment inside. <coughs> Developing that type of being um, <coughs> allows you to then become intimate with reality and even intimate with some hard parts of reality. And you can endure that intimacy without it quickly going into, I need to problem solve this. So you can understand the nature of pain. You have enough well-being to understand pain. You have enough well-being to understand the aging process and the dying process. You have enough well-being to start encountering aspects of life that <clears throat> bring with them some agitation and therefore bring with a sort of a sense, I have to solve this. And so you're more compulsively motivated to get out of this situation versus trying to understand it. So samadhi allows you to have a more intimate relationship with reality, a more full relationship, if you want to. Some people like their samadhi so much that they don't want to have contact with something unpleasant. And so they um, get more and more reclusive to kind of keep the world at bay so they can actually keep in contact with their samadhi. But that samadhi ends up being weak, weakened by the fact that you are really running away from something. 
So <clears throat> anyways, uh, <laughs> the first 12 steps of the 16 in the Anapanasati Sutta are geared towards developing uh, samadhi. The next four are for um, liberating insight, as are the four foundations of mindfulness and as are the seven factors of awakening. They're meant to um, let us see the nature of things clearly and from that relate and make choices by seeing things clearly. And I think about um, if, if we like being the center of the universe and having the sun go around us and all the planets and the stars go around us, that's great because we're at the center. But <clears throat> it's not how things actually work. And so if you can tolerate not being at the center of everything, you get to live in the majesty of everything. So it's like, what a trade-off. And, and great that I'm not the center of everything. I mean, <laughs> narcissism isn't necessarily all that pleasant. It comes with a huge burden of having being the center of everything. So attuning to reality is, actually decreases stress when you can come to terms with reality. For us, that comes with some hard experiences, but when you can allow them to be, there's a whole bunch of stress that comes out of you because you can relate to the fact that we're in a body that feels pain. We're in a body that ages. No experience is lasting. Therefore, pleasures come and go. Pains come and go. When you mature your relationship to those experiences and you still find that there's some contentment, even though other pleasures come and go, there's a type of contentment in someone who can live in accord with reality. That's, that's a free heart and mind because it's not dependent upon certain conditions. That's where all these, that's where the next part of this tradition goes, the next part of this training goes into developing um, insight into the nature of things. And it does that by first developing samadhi, first developing stability of attention and strength of attention. And then we point it in directions where we'll learn about the nature of things um, and develop our meditative practice, our mindfulness practice, to become more mature in, the, in some difficult areas. So we're going on to number four here, liberating insights. So <clears throat> there are some people, there are some people in some traditions, Pali Canon, Theravada traditions, that don't, that do a unified practice. And so if you're aware of the breath, you just stay like you've always been doing it and you learn as you go. And so there are teachers here that they haven't really done thought of these as two different practices. They just keep doing the one practice and because they learn as they go, they're developing liberating insight while they're also developing more and more balance, more and more unity. Um, there are other traditions where these are actually two different practices. So you do your samadhi practice and then you do your vipassana practice, your insight practice. I trained more in the, in the second, so that's how I understand things and that's how I've experienced things. That's, you're going to get taught that way. I don't think it's the right way, but it's, um, I'm more familiar with that. So that's how I understand this. 
<clears throat> so after developing some concentration, some sense of well-being, some sense of peace and stillness, we begin investigating impermanence. The way you investigate impermanence, right in the flow of present time experience, there are so many aspects that make up a present moment that you're rarely aware of all of it at once. You're, you're choosing what to be aware of. You could be aware of sight, you could be aware of sound, you could be aware of body sensations, and that your mind is already making choices as you listen to me talk here. How much sight, sound, body sensations, past, present, other things that you're attending. Impermanence is a part of every experience, but it's often not at the forefront of our experience. It's completely a part of every experience, and strange that we don't know it, that we're not that intimate with impermanence. So this is where we begin turning from uh, resting the mind, keeping it stable, uh, finding contentment. And then what you do in the flow of the same experiences that were developing your samadhi, you begin looking at that flow as a bunch of temporary experiences so that the breath comes and goes. In some ways the breath is steady, and in some ways the breath is ever-changing. The tingling in your fingertips, looked at one way, it's pretty steady. Looked at another, it's completely changing. There's nothing but changing experiences. The same with the pulsing of your heart. The same with the words that you're hearing. So we, you don't have to do anything radically different but you turn your intimacy towards a direct experience of the arising and passing nature of wherever your attention is landing. So you don't necessarily do a different meditation. You kind of keep the same thing going, but now you're looking at arising and passing, the arising and passing nature of all experience. I couldn't complete this sentence if the various parts of it weren't arising and passing. Otherwise, all the sounds would just collide and it'd be one big jumble of sound coming out of my mouth. It's because one word ends and another word begins and another, that word ends and finally the sentence ends that even begins to make sense. So arising and passing is happening all the time. So it's not that hard to find. We're just not used to building intimacy with arising and passing, arising and passing. And that's what we do here as we begin to attune to arising and passing. The way you do that is you, <clears throat> you put your attention where arising and passing is the easiest to see. It's like you feel your breath where it's easiest to feel. You try to put your attention where it's easiest to see arising and passing. Most visual experience does not really show you arising and passing very easily. Because if we look at mostly uh, stable objects, this object doesn't appear to be arising and passing, so it's not a great place to start. The places that are really good to start are body sensations, the sound, and thought. Those three realms arise and pass very quickly. There's a lot of change. They're very dynamic. Flavors, not so much. Sense, not so much. And visual experience, not so much. But um, 
body sensations, thoughts, and sounds. There's a lot of a lot of motion. So first, you begin to notice the arising nature of every moment. If I um, <clears throat> if I had a, um, uh, a digital clock in front of me, like a sports watch, and I press start, you could see the seconds changing, and every now and then the the tens of seconds changing, but you actually could see the tenths of seconds changing. There, our human mind is fast enough to see there's, there's ten digits going very fast, but we really can't discern the hundredths of a second. There, we see that it's not stable, but we can't pick out individual numbers. And thousands of a second, it just is too much of a blur. So that's about the time frame where we can see very rapid change is about tenths of a second. That's just the way our minds work. So you begin to uh, find that steady place of well-being, and then you can make a choice to look at what's happening moment by moment here. What's happening in my breath, or if you're listening to sound, or the nature of thought. It's changing very rapidly. And you keep returning your attention back to this direct contact with the arising and passing nature of experience. It's interesting at first, and then it gets boring like everything. (laughs) You stay with it, and it keeps getting more interesting, and then boring, and more interesting, boring, more interesting. And it keeps seesawing like that. And then there comes a moment after some steady work where your mind begins to get it. It's like, oh my God, it's, this body is just creeping and crawling with nothing but changing things. I haven't found one steady thing. This body is nothing but impermanent experiences. And I can say that, and we can all nod our heads, and we get it intellectually, but we don't live with it down deep in our, in our deep understanding. I still think this is the same body that I woke up into this morning. And it's roughly like the body I had yesterday. Therefore, this body is reliable and non-changing. Yet it does change. It changes rapidly from the inside if I feel it. And my gray hairs are showing me it's changing slowly over time. And it doesn't look like it did five years ago or 10 years ago. So this body is constantly changing, but I get away with calling it the same, which means I get to have self. I get to have this non-changing self until it won't actually behave like a non-changing self. It begins to age or change. And that's troubling because my default is that it doesn't change. Does that make sense? So deepening our sense of impermanence, at some point you have to be very patient with it. And at some point the mind shifts and it understands. It understands that the body is um, an ever-changing experience. And it changes on an arc from a beginning through a, a, a time of stability towards a falling apart and towards a complete falling apart. All things have this arc. You can repaint a house, but it just puts it back to zero and all painted houses age and look like older painted houses. Um, that's just a part of all experience. It has a beginning new phase, has a stable phase, and it has an aging phase and has a falling apart phase. I have a, a, a mug that I love at home, 
and it's taken seven years before it's had its first chip. I knew it was coming. <laughs> I'm a potter and I've been loving this mug and I knew it was coming, but for seven years it hasn't. So I've got to love it. And that first chip, I, even though I knew it was coming, it's just very different when I see it starting to fall apart. That's a mug, you know, and I have, I, <laughs> my parents are in their 70s and there's still, there's still a lot of um, psychological vitality and they still have some physical vitality, but they're definitely aging. And I'm watching myself, you know, I'm a Buddhist teacher, so this is not news. But when they, as they actually age, it's just, it's difficult. And it's not, and I, I've been imagining them actually aging for a long time, but as they actually age, it's difficult. It's not easy. As my body actually ages, as people I've known have passed away, it's never easy. But it gets easier because I'm not expecting it to be different. And that's maturing our relationship to impermanence. As we mature our relationship to impermanence, we begin to investigate this passion. There's a word, uh, viraga, is the Pali. And raga is a type of um, embroiled um, agitation. And sometimes that's fun, and sometimes it's not fun but it's somewhat addictive to be embroiled. And the viraga is, is the release of that. So you're releasing the, the complicated, um, obsessive, entangled relationship the mind has to experience because it sees that it's impermanent. And the, the mind-mind becomes more uh, like it's a, a Teflon fry pan, is that it can deliver the heat be very intimate with the eggs, but the eggs come off easy. And so as you know impermanence, you just tend not to cling, you tend not to, to grab on, and things don't grab on to you. You're less um, covered in the stickiness of life. And so you have experiences, there's a lot of intimacy, and the intimacy is actually cleaner because you can flow through it without getting so caught up in it. So you begin to investigate, and you can prime this a little bit, but at some point, the mind recognizes it, recognizes that nothing is improved by this grasping. And, and because impermanence is universal, does the mind understand impermanence? It understands uh, this letting go. More than impermanence, the mind can begin to see that when something is gone, it is gone forever. This moment in time, this sentence is gone, and we will never get it back. There's no replaying a second that has just passed. Things, the entire universe is gone every moment, inaccessible. You know, it's 2.16 right now. And in a minute, that entire minute will be gone, and nobody has found a way to repeat it. So things go, and when they go, they're gone. That's a little bit harder than impermanence, Impermanence still, you can buy some time that something's going to change and be gone. But when you really start to, to feel in the cessation, the complete and uh, cessation of all experience, <clears throat> is, a, is a further letting go of this attachment strategy for happiness and security. As the mind understands 
the totality and the fullness of cessation. It does more than, than become dispassionate, not embroiled. It begins to shed any type of, of impulse for grabbing on. And there's a very, very deep relinquishing of, um, of any type of orientation towards stability or permanence. It just is a deepening of these others. And so this happens by degrees, but this is the taste of every, um, every further step in this tradition's form of liberation is the mind lets go on a level and doesn't pick back up. It doesn't mean that it becomes less intimate. There's still, actually the intimacy improves because it's not so complicated with what you're holding on to or what you're needing out of a certain situation. So you become more intimate, but less attached, less grasping, less holding on to for uh, contentment and security, more willing to live without those. And at some point, there's a, there's a great release. These, are, uh, these grow over time, and then there are these epiphanies, and they, there's a deep letting go that happens when, uh, when you investigate the well-being and the truth and the honesty that comes from living in a mind that's letting go and has really internalized non-attachment, non-clinging, non-grasping. So we're going to practice, we're going to do some sitting practice now, and really just looking at the impermanent side. And then later we'll start looking at these four foundations as the next place we take this practice, this breathing practice. But for now, um, let's do a sitting practice where we work on these four. (coughs) 